0: Ar, Arabarwena? Arabarwena? Arabarwena?
1: Arabarwena? Ara yeah. Arabarwena? Arabarwena. Arabarwena. Ara yeah. yeah.
0: Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoresportsReport.com.
1: You are listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan
0: Smith. Let's
1: get stupid. Baltimoreans, hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Good, to, good to see you all out there in Radio Land this week. Welcome, ladies and
0: gentlemen, to episode 97 of Baltimoreans, the show that, like Mass and broadcasters Gary Thorne and Jim Palmer, knows how to appreciate a good burger. Yeah, he pounced on it like an In and Out burger. Mm-mm-mm. We've got a fantastic program on tap for you this evening, folks. In just a few minutes, we'll be joined, as we are whenever he can find time in his busy schedule by Orioles Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Dan Duquette. Now, as close listeners to the program are already aware, I had not, until recently, seen the movie Bull Durham. It was rightly pointed out by a not insignificant number of folks that this fact effectively disqualified me from co-hosting a podcast which is, ostensibly, about baseball. Fortunately, you're still qualified to host this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fair point, and as such, I'm happy to report that Alan recently arranged a screening of the film at his apartment in an attempt to rectify this unfortunate situation. Thing is, it turns out Dan Duquette had also never seen Bull Durham, which is surprising on a number of levels, in particular the level at which Dan is an avowed fan of musical theater, as evidenced by his performance of an adaptation of Whatever Lola Wants from Damn Yankees on these very airwaves. You'd think a man with that level of cultural acumen would be well-versed in all forms of baseball's cultural manifestation, but not so. Fortunately, however, Dan was available for the screening at Alan's apartment and joined us, and it turns out that the movie aroused some complex emotions for him, which he'd like to share. (laughs) As you all know, I personally have almost no opinions whatsoever, and generally steer clear of most forms of cultural engagement. So during that portion of the program, I'll be ducking out of Hootenanny Studios to rearrange my stamp collection. We'll also bring you the latest installment of our award winning 7th Inning Sketch series. This week, guest writer Jen Adams, who you may recall serving as our impartial judge on the 2014 nickname episode, has provided us with some rare audio from inside the clubhouse of an undisclosed team shortly after the trading deadline. We think you'll agree that this week's sketch lives up to the 7th Inning Sketch's official motto exclusive audio that probably should have stayed that way. <laughs> Of course, no episode of Baltimoreans would be complete without our most popular recurring segment, the Jeff Conine Franchise Report. Now folks, we all know that things got pretty gloomy at Camden Yards for that horrible 14 year period from 1997 to 2011. And we've saluted the efforts True. of Melvin Mora in the past, who was somehow able to grind out a number of very solid seasons amidst the quagmire of tomfoolery in which he was asked to <laughs> perform. <laughs> But Jeff Conine deserves some similar accolades. During the five-year hellscape of 1999 to 2003, when the Orioles ran up a combined winning percentage of 436, Conine batted 290, smacked 70 homers, hmm. and posted an on-base percentage of 341 while alternating back and forth between first base, third base, and the outfield on a regular basis. The real tragedy of it all is that he retired following the 2007 season thereby missing the opportunity to make 2009 the year of Conine, which would have actually been pretty fitting, considering (laughs) that the 2009 (laughs) Orioles finished 64-98, and equaling the patheticness of the teams for whom Conine labored so tirelessly. A missed opportunity. (laughs) On a number of levels. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we shuddered several nights ago as a Scott Feldman pitch plunked Nelson Cruz threatening to shatter not only the metacarpal bones in his left hand, but our dreams along with them, robbing us of what appears to be the sole source of certainty in the 2014 baseball season. We live, as we often remark right about now on Baltimore Ons, in uncertain times. (laughs) There are few places we can look for dependable comfort, although the Baltimore Sports Report Network, of which we're a proud member, along with our sister-wife podcasts, continues to be one of them. As we ponder a world of ever-increasing mystery, let us turn to the man who has so often dispersed the clouds with his radiant verbal winds, Alan Smith.
1: When you think of the number 97, you can't help but think transportation infrastructure. That's right, the sounds that you're hearing in the background right now are the opening notes for the song of the old 97. A cautionary ballad about what happens when speed laws are not properly heeded and railway foundations are poorly maintained. Woody Guthrie is singing about an actual real train wreck, in which a mail train jumped the track and plunged into a ravine somewhere outside Danville, Virginia in 1903. It's amazing that a wreck like this is still a part of our popular culture, thanks to the folk ballads of Guthrie and the crooning of Mr. Johnny Cash. But it's interesting to think about what current events might be worthy of a ballad in the future. And I wonder, Sam, what sort of songs might we be singing in 111 years from now? For example, 97 people have been arrested in 16 different countries for being involved in something called the Black Shades virus, which allows people to hack into your computer's camera remotely even while it appears off. What sort of song might we pen about that? Then she turned and she said to her video camera, gosh it's a good thing that you're off, cause I sure don't want pictures of me on the internet not wearing a stitch of cloth. Or how about Sally Mae being forced to pay $97 million in fines for overcharging troops on their education loans? This, plus the current shenanigans going on in the VA hospitals around this country, sure does make you wonder about how much we really support our troops and also how a ballad might go in just a few years. He was going to school for just $65,000 which made his mind want to scream. And it was on his back that they funded a bubble just living the American dream. That one's good. I just don't know, Sam. I'm not sure we really have the deep human pathos anymore that we used to as a culture. In this ever more snapchatable society, Does anything have the power to last more than 15 minutes, let alone 111 years? Perhaps this is why we return, as we always do, to baseball. Week to week, we check back in on this historic but, frankly, very silly sport. And we put out this same quixotic and, frankly, very silly podcast. And we do this because we crave the connection to the sorts of stories that grew into American folk heroes. Also, it should be said here on episode 97, that we do want to pay tribute to a man who once distributed mimeographed copies of his lyrics that read, quote, This song is copyrighted in U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years. And anybody caught singing it without our permission will be mighty good friends of ours because we don't give a damn. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Thanks, Woody. We boot up the old microphones to talk baseball or call our next game. I'm gonna slap a big old this Mike kills fascists stamp on Sam's electro voice RE20 in your honor.
0: Well ladies you must all take warning from this time now. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Jeff Conine Franchise Report, where each week we take the three most relevant news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them an objective quality
1: score. First up on the report this week, the Orioles have added Johan Santana to the 40-man roster, and if all goes according to plan, he could be in the majors and perhaps the starting rotation by late June. Sam, what do you make of this development? I'm going to give this one Manny Machado. (laughs)
0: Because I think there is a very decent chance here, Smith, that Johan Santana could have the same kind of effect on our starting rotation that Manny Machado had on our defense in 2012, where it was perhaps a little bit of an aggressive promotion, but it stabilized things. Wow. The performance all around was not spectacular, (laughs) but it was rock solid. And it was rock solid in a way that the rest of the crew apparently needed to really gel and begin to play as a team and get into the playoffs. And as we have talked about many times on this show, that is what is going on with the 2014 Orioles. It's either the offense is playing great and the starting pitching can't get through the fifth inning, or... It's quality start after quality start after quality start, and the offense can't scratch out more than two runs. Uh, There's been a lot of stuff written already about the kind of grandfatherly influence that he's had on Dylan Bundy and the way that he has, without really being prompted, kind of opted into the role of being an elder statesman for a lot of the young pitchers on the team. Who do you bump out of the starting rotation to get him in there? Well, that's the other thing I think is really great about this, is that right now, There's not really anybody who has been so (laughs) abysmal that I think they should be summarily booted from the rotation. Really? I think if you look at it objectively, the guys who are supposed to be our two best pitchers have been our two least consistent pitchers, Tillman and Jimenez. Right. Uh, Norris, Miguel Gonzalez, and Wei-Yin Chen have actually been fairly consistent, albeit with lower peaks than Tillman and Jimenez. Okay. So I think what Santana does, if he comes in and pitches as well as he's capable of doing, is he creates pressure on everybody to get out there and succeed,
1: and there's no way that that can be a bad thing. Well, I'm going to give this one Ray Mitchell from Angels in the Outfield. Okay. Remember the uh, august character who uh, struggles through a season despite not having his best stuff and is inspired by the young... uh, Teammates around him and a last chance at greatness and then sort of falls apart when they need him the most.
0: <laughs> oh, man. You have just told a very complicated story about Johan Santana in theory.
1: Well, I think, that, uh, I think that Ray Mitchell was someone who was on the end of his career and maybe was able to scrape it together for one last good run. And I hope that's what we end up with, Johan. But I'm not totally convinced that he's going to be somebody who can, uh, who can come back in and miss enough bats. I think he comes back, makes it into the second round of the playoffs, and just blows his arm out, and it like literally falls off <laughs> as he tries to deliver toward home plate. This is <laughs> uncharacteristically cynical from you, Smith.
0: We usually, I, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, in this portion of the program, look to you for a a strong but hearty dose of pragmatic <laughs> optimism.
1: It's not there when it comes to pitchers developed in the Orioles system
0: so you think the Orioles farm system <laughs> from a pitching standpoint is a black hole I do from which I think no it's,
1: I think it's a black mark and I think that it will sap uh, forever and ever anyone's ability to be an effective pitcher
0: all right well item number two on the Jeff Conine <laughs> franchise report on that sunny note Smith what in the Sam Hill has gotten into the Toronto Blue Jays they enter play tonight leading the AL East by four games and would appear to be firing on all cylinders while the rest of the division seems intent on gazing quizzically at its navel and wondering what it all means. Should we be terrified? Yes.
1: Yes, we should. Okay. This is a terrifying team. <laughs> uh, I I think that, you know, for the last two years we've thought, you know, what happens if the Blue Jays put it all together and then sort of laughed and said, <laughs> Blue Jays going to Blue Jays. <laughs> that will never actually happen. I'm going to give this one 2012 Orioles early season because I think that there are a lot of similarities between the this Blue Jays team and that Orioles team um, which was a surprising turnaround by a slugger who is really leading the league and and helping them take off Um, some young pitchers who are putting together a weird series of performances that don't necessarily track with their full-time record uh, but could be the beginnings of a new uh, a new career drew hutchinson being the prime example i hope that it doesn't hold together but i don't think that there's anybody else in the al east who is really looking to snatch it back from them right now i'm going to give it a
0: uh one rick santorum and i say that because that i think harsh <laughs> <laughs> i think i think uh i think the blue jays are an unexpectedly strong upstart challenger <laughs> who nobody, to fade. <laughs> nobody was expecting to put on quite as strong a showing uh, as they're putting on right now. And I think like Santorum, who was able to win a bunch of primaries when Mitt Romney was still kind of getting his ducks in a row, I think that's what's going on with the Blue Jays right now. I think there's no way to slice it from a talent standpoint that we don't ultimately have a better claim to the American League East nomination, Uh, for president of the division. (laughs) And if you will permit that horrible mixing of metaphors. Um, And I think ultimately when you look at the Blue Jays, there's not enough stability in the lineup. There's not enough stability in the rotation. And critically, they don't have a good enough manager I don't think, to really sustain this for the rest of the season. I think Gibbons in Toronto is somebody who right now has a team that is undeniably talented, that is 100% healthy, 100% firing on all on all cylinders. If that changes, which it's still very likely that it will, I think we'll see the Blue Jays teams that we've seen in the past, which is still has some strong pieces, but he's not able to really do much with it.
1: Your theory is that, There is an inevitability to the more seasoned and funded, well-funded campaign eventually regaining the top billing.
0: Well, in baseball, yes. In baseball, yes. Well,
1: certainly in in politics. In
0: politics, yes, but it makes me sad in politics. (laughs) Whereas with baseball, I would prefer for the establishment candidates to ultimately prevail.
1: Really? Because the Orioles are not really an establishment candidate, or they haven't been for the last 25 years. But compared to the Blue Jays. (laughs) (laughs) Item number three this week. The next time you need some ice to chill your summer adult beverage of choice, look no further than the veins of the Atlanta Braves, who, according to a recent Deadspin article by Barry Pacheski, appears to have stacked the house at a recent public hearing regarding public financing for their new stadium, timing the meeting such that working folks couldn't get in line early enough to get speaking slots at the hearing. As such, all 12 people who spoke at the hearing voiced approval of the new stadium, which will cost $400 million in taxpayer dollars and will replace Turner Field, which is, as of right now, not even 20 years old. Sam, is there anything that you can tell me right now that will make me feel okay about trying to trade for Freddie Freeman on my fantasy team? I am afraid
0: that there isn't. Uh, I think this is two strikes and you're out against the Braves. Uh, because they already are guilty of the racist team mascot. Not a good look. The massively overpaying BJ Upton crime. <laughs> <laughs> not to mention Dan Ugla. Not to mention Dan Ugla. And not to mention it would appear Jason Hayward. Uh, Oops. Maybe maybe too early to say. Too soon. I am going to give this... Uh, I'm just going to give this a gargamel. I'm going to go ahead and give it a garg. Um, oof. It's just... It's so blatant and it's so ugly and they're not going to get in any trouble for it and which it, we're sort of getting away from the gargamel comparison here i guess there's always going to be <laughs> another episode of the smurfs they're never quite going to kill gargamel and let's leave the smurfs behind now for the duration of this portion of the program <laughs> this uh, metaphor <laughs> but it, it's just terrible yeah. it's just terrible because they're going to get away with this they're going to get this new stadium people are going to say well Most of the people who are going to be hit the hardest by the the taxes that are going to go into this are going to be the people who aren't paying enough attention to recognize how egregious it is. It's going to go through, and then other teams in other cities are going to mimic it, and the whole process is just going to perpetuate, and it's awful. And it's just
1: awful. I don't think there's ever been a case where a team, because they were playing in an old and run-down stadium, was less able to compete ...on the field, and I think it's pretty clear that people go to games because they would like to watch a good team be competitive on the field. So I think that there's really very few situations in which, oh, I have an old stadium, or it's keeping our team from being successful, is a really legitimate claim. And after that, especially with Turner Field, which was built... Let's just say it again, because this is really ridiculous. It was built in 1994 for the Olympics in Atlanta. I'm going to give this particular thing a 17-tweet rant on Twitter by someone about Adam Jones, who has forgotten that Adam Jones is actually quite a good baseball player, because it seems to me to be a one of those things that you see in the moment, and it fires you up and makes you mad, but you don't look at it in the larger context of the hospital closing and the school shuttering, and I hear all the time, all the time in public policy debates, well, there's all these governments are cutting back and we just don't have enough money to do the things we want to do. That is not true. That is objectively not the case. America is the wealthiest country on earth, and it continues to be the wealthiest country on earth, and we are making value-based decisions here by doing what is essentially continued corporate welfare. And I think that continued corporate welfare does not need to exist in the same universe that sports exist in because we're still going to go watch these games and we're still going to love. This team, And even if they're playing in a slightly dilapidated dump or even if we're going to that mammoth shitty Coliseum down in Tampa or a shitty Coliseum out in Oakland, people will still show up and support their team if it's a good team, if it's filled with good people and they're winning ballgames. It has nothing to do with whether the ownership group of the Atlanta Braves is able to make a little bit more on luxury boxes.
0: Let's look at the Braves. Uh, are the Braves having financial struggles right now? Nope. Um, no. Look at the size <laughs> of the extensions that they gave to Andrelton Simmons, to Craig Kimbrell, to uh, Julio Tehran, to Freddie Freeman, Jesus Christ, (laughs) and to Jason Hayward. They have locked in the young, talented core of their team for the next seven or eight years at extreme financial extravagance for very young players who, by and large, haven't even really proven themselves yet. Clearly, money is not a problem, and that is already
1: with the albatross contracts of Dan Ugla and B.J. Upton on the books. Yeah, the the reality of baseball is that no one is losing any money on any of these teams. I mean, anyone who claims that they are should open their books and show us because I don't think that there's any owner who is moving in the wrong direction. Plus, as we just saw, as we just saw, the Clippers are now worth two billion dollars. If the Dodgers are worth two point five billion dollars and the Clippers are worth two, then there's not a team in Major League Baseball that's less worth less than six hundred million. So if you're suddenly a little bit tight next week, just sell the fucking team. (laughs) Yeah. Walk away with $600 million and go live on an island. Yeah. Anytime anyone tells you about a baseball team that's not making money or a sports franchise that needs public support, I think that they're pulling the wool over your eyes. You're being lied to. It's a shame. It's a shame. And $400 million tax dollars uh, is a lot of money that could have gone to a lot of different places. Well...
0: Let's introduce some radiance and hope into the room (laughs) Since you, Smith, have failed to
1: That seems to have been a really grim
0: franchise report I apologize to everyone involved (laughs) Uh, We do have Dan Duquette here with us this evening To discuss the film Bull Durham Which he and I saw for the first time Just two weeks ago Uh, As I said earlier, however, I prefer to Bow out of any and all cultural engagements Uh, So I'm going to go we rearrange my stamp collection, and Dan will join us right after the break on Baltimore
1: You're listening to Baltimore Ons. This is Alan Smith. Uh, Sam has ducked out for the moment, but I am proud and excited to be joined for the first time in studio. By Orioles executive vice president of baseball operations Dan Duquette. Dan, welcome to Hootenanny Studios. Helen uh, how are you? I'm doing. I'm doing really well, man. It's good to see you here. Oh uh, well, uh, it's a nice.
0: It's a nice place you got here. Uh, I I did appreciate the cat doorman treatment. Uh, he offered me an alcoholic beverage on the way in. I did not partake uh, because, as 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 you may be aware. Been well,
1: Doing a lot of kombucha. Sure, I understand. I understand. We, 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 we like to keep the green room here pretty nice. So, Dan, how had you managed to avoid seeing Bull Durham at all over the course of your life? It, for me, it's the classic baseball movie.
0: Well, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you hear that something is popular. And so you think, oh, I should be into that. But then you're a guy like Dan Duquette, you know? And uh, nobody's inviting you to do the popular things.
1: Sure, sure.
0: So you're forced to uh, do things on your own, and you end up being drawn towards more obscure pursuits. Uh, for example, uh, I'm a very big fan of the, uh, the comics of Alan Moore. Uh, one of
1: my favorites. So then you, when you have finally seen the movie, what did you think uh, on, on first blush about the, about the film? Well, uh, Alan, you know I hold
0: you in very high esteem. And I don't want you to interpret anything I'm about to say as a refutation of that fact. But I, I could not help feeling that uh, Bull Durham was a, a fairly sexist film. <laughs> sure. And, uh, and in ways that, that I, I, I thought by our modern standards uh, were, were somewhat appalling. Here you have a story about uh, a young woman, Susan Sarandon who uh, feels that her only value in this community is the, uh, the sexual fulfillment that she offers to these minor league baseball players, who I think we can agree are, are to a man, a fairly immature and uh, disengaged bunch. And uh, so, so that, that I've, I found that, that troubling, that she felt like she was expected to play this role. Um. Now,
1: now, let's let's wait a second here. We, we, we have to put this movie in the context in which it was filmed. We're talking about first wave feminism here, where the ability to do what you will as you want to do it is, in fact, one of the most important goals of the feminist movement. So, in fact, at the time, I think she represented a very enlightened and uh, uh, because of her of her, of her open sexuality, actually a very free character for the morals and the, the the moment in which she is playing. Remember, this is rural North Carolina in the, we're going to say, early 80s. Well, uh, you know, Alan,
0: that's a fair point. And uh, I, too, enjoyed the Adam Sandler vehicle click. But uh, <laughs> we cannot stop time. Time is not, time is not a, a freezable entity. It moves on and it advances. And whereas that argument perhaps would have held water for me uh, th- at the time that the film was made, uh, watching it with uh, a modern and more enlightened pair of eyes, um, not to be too self-aggrandizing, but, you know, I, I did see some value in Nate McLouth when a lot of people thought that he was done.
1: Uh, <laughs> Which he now appears to be, by the way.
0: Nah, well, I, I didn't resign him either. He wanted too much money. I think I have a, I, in my best moments, have a certain capacity for clear-headed thought, and I think uh, perhaps history has
1: moved past Bull Durham and and left it behind. So, Dan, are you saying that art, taken out of its uh, original context, is, is no longer valuable? Let's look at let's look at uh, uh, the Botticelli painting where a woman is standing naked on a shell, um, covering herself in certain key areas, um, does she no longer have value because it is essentially a sexually exploitive thing to force a woman to pose nude for a piece of art? Well, uh, Botticelli, it's a little different.
0: Uh, I found his models very attractive. I, uh, just to say to any of the the ladies in the audience, I like a little ham on my sandwich, if you know what I mean. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I think uh, when we're talking about a painting, there's a different argument to be made, Alan, which is that uh, a painting, in its very essence, is, is much more representational than a film. Uh, I think there is, is an ad- admitted bias in the medium for, um, for a, a lack of reality, because painting cannot, of course, recreate reality. And it's very clear in the painting that you're referring to. That uh, because uh, no woman actually lives in a seashell uh, <laughs> that I'm aware of. I, I've i not been to the bottom of the sea. I hope to one day make that voyage. However, uh, I, I think what Botticelli is trying to do here is to convey something perhaps metaphorical about femininity as perceived by him, uh, whereas in a film like Bull Durham, I, I think we're, uh, there's a certain amount of
1: realism that's being gone for which is uh a bit cynical. So let's then let's talk about the realism. You have to admit that the movie does a fair pass at capturing the ridiculousness of small town, we'll call it single A baseball experience.
0: Uh yes, I I I think it captured a certain amount of the uh, goofiness that is prevalent In those leagues, however, it it fails to contextualize it. It is not self-aware about the the backwardness of the thinking uh, that is that goes on in these small-time clubhouses. Um, And I think there there was an opportunity to contextualize this, to to even present it as somehow charming, even if. Uh, it is ultimately a bit wrong-headed. Instead, it just sort of uh, uh, presents it as, as uh, a thing that exists and tries to milk it for laughs without really examining the root uh,
1: ethos that creates it. It's a very interesting point. It's a very interesting point. Thank
0: I... you. I, I'm a, I, I went to Yale University. Is that true? I don't, I don't know, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, you, uh, so your experience watching this sort of classic baseball and romance film was to put it entirely in a 2014 context and thus um, uh, uh, miss out, I would say, on some of the whimsicalness that was my childhood experience of watching that movie. Was there anything in the... Uh, uh, relationships between the characters particularly Crash Davis and uh, uh, Nuke Lelouch that you felt was an appropriate uh, encapsulation of the old guard new guard uh, scenario that I think continues on in baseball to this day including um, Cole Hamill's drilling a young upstart Bryce Harper for not playing the game the right way.
0: Sure, sure. I think there was a, a certain amount of that. But uh, perhaps uh, because uh, of how much we see that storyline played out uh, on a day-in and day-out basis, especially in this modern era when we're bringing up prospects at such a very young age and are so aware of their their youth and, uh, and brash nature, I think uh, I, I perceived that the storyline was there, but there was nothing about it Per se that felt so compelling that I, I thought I was learning something new, about
1: uh, about this phenomenon. Now, no one has ever really accused Kevin Costner of being much of an actor. Um, he he. he... Uh, it's it's a very serious charge to make <laughs> against somebody. <laughs> he he delivers a mean line on occasion, but uh, certainly does most of his acting with his stony-faced gaze and uh, chiseled. Features.
0: He's a very attractive man.
1: Now, are you, uh, based on watching this film, are you going to follow up and watch, say, some of his other classics like Waterworld or Tin Cup or even his current film in theaters, Three Days?
0: Well, it's unclear to me why we're throwing the word classic around in reference to films like <laughs> Tin Cup and Waterworld, but...
1: Waterworld's definitively a
0: classic. <laughs> But for all the wrong reasons, Smith. <laughs> oh, my God. The question, as I understand it, is uh, do I find fault with Kevin Costner's portrayal of Crash Davis, or uh, do I think that the part was just badly written? He, you know, I, I think uh, perhaps had had the role been played by by somebody with a, a bit more uh, natural grit, perhaps a Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, do you like Tommy Lee Jones' work? Sure. He's one of my favorites. Uh, have you ever seen uh, Have you ever seen Cobb? Great movie. Uh, that's a great baseball movie. <laughs> uh, I think perhaps somebody like that maybe would have uh, been able to bring a little bit more, um, a little bit more gravitas to the part. I would have believed the frustration that Crash Davis has theoretically experienced a little bit more. His hair was very perfect in the film. <laughs> his his hair is very perfect. He does not. Read as somebody who has suffered in the way that we're asked to believe that he has suffered.
1: The film was written and directed by Ron Shelton, um, who played second base in the Baltimore Orioles' farm system for a number of years. Um, did eventually make it the A ball, but never made it to the big leagues himself, and always feared becoming a Crash Davis. Do you uh, feel any affinity for the film, knowing that it came on the backs of an Oriole prospect?
0: Well, I, I think it I think it clearly indicates that there were some nuggets of truth in the script, uh because it was written by somebody who had lived a certain amount of the experience that the movie attempts to portray. So I, I think that's valuable. Um our our own farm system has never been one that uh I think I try to claim too much credit for, <laughs> given its uh multiple weaknesses. <laughs> so uh you know, I'm, I'm basically happy that Ron survived uh, without having to have Tommy John surgery.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Dan, for stopping by. Sorry you didn't enjoy the movie, but uh, hopefully you can come back and visit us, visit us a little later. I, I'd
0: love to, and uh, if I could recommend a film for us to watch the next time. Uh, uh, you familiar with Peter Greenaway?
1: I'm not familiar with that movie.
0: Hi has a movie called The Pillow Book. Uh, it's, about, uh, it's about people who are addicted to getting tattoos. Um. Very, very interesting psychological study, not really related to baseball, but uh, Dan, do you have any ink? Do, do I have ink? Are you kidding me? What? you think you think just because I think just because I wear a coat and tie to the ballpark, I, I, I don't know how to party? All right. We'll have I to- have a tattoo of a unicorn. you wouldn't believe where it is.
1: We're, gonna, we're uh, all out of time here, but we'll have to have Dan to get back to talk about his body art at a later time. Well, folks, the trade rumors are already starting to fly, particularly in the AL East, where the fight for the top spot is looking fiercer than ever. Lots of players figure to change uniforms this summer, and I think it's fair to say we don't often pause to think about how confusing it must be for team personnel when those changes happen. Fortunately, this week's seventh-inning sketch, which comes to us from guest writer Jen Adams, sheds some light on the experience as she reveals clubhouse audio from shortly after last year's trade deadline.
0: Well, kid, it's a pleasure to meet you and good to have you on board. You too, sir. I'm a little out of the loop. I I just got the call we made some changes around here, but I I ain't seen a trade wires today. Uh, Plus, we got all these foreigners playing the game these days. Not like when I came up. Can you help me out? Of course. There's a lot of odd names now. Pet names. Like, My Is Taurus. Tuffy Goes Witch. Or Jason Bay. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, let's see what we have on the bags here, shall we? So, uh, who's on first? Duda. What? Duda. I said, what? Dude,
1: that's his last name. No, I know who he is. I'm just having a hard time understanding why. Prince Fielder has a neck injury. That's weak. Uh, he's on second, sir. What? Dude is on second? The dude on second is Weeks. I'd say the dude on first is weak. Duda is on
0: first. Second is Weeks. Look, when you sign him up to play, how does a man playing first base sign his name? I'm not sure he knows how, sir. Uh, never mind. We still got the rest of the lineup to get through. Now, shortstop.
1: Andrews? Uh, yes. He's playing today, Andrews. Yes? Good. Kids got hustle. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I thought you were talking to me. My name is Roos, sir. Your name is Roos? Yes, sir. Is that short for something? Short is Ara Buena. Wait. Roos is short for Ara, Ara Uh, No, no. Short is Ara Buena.
0: No, let me get this straight. Dude is on first, Weeks is on second, and Lady from Ipanema is
1: playing shortstop. Right, yes. All right, then. I think I got it. No. Jose Reyes is playing shortstop. Uh, Since when? And why are you calling me Ray? Sorry, sir. I thought that was your name. It's actually Leslie. Oh. Huh. So Reyes is now in the lineup. Uh, Yes, sir. Arborena has just strained his left oblique. In the last two minutes? Uh, Yes, sir. He's on his way to have it checked out right now. Dr. Andrews. Yes? Quick work. At least we got a top guy on it. Uh, Who, sir? Dr. Andrews. Oh, I beg your pardon, sir. I thought you were talking to me and my wife here. Um, she's a cardiologist. Hello. So Ara-, Ara Benima isn't with Dr. Andrews?
0: Hello. Dr. Andrews, the orthopedic surgeon, specializes in sports medicine. Uh, no, actually, he's doing some sort of herbal thing. Might I inquire as to what being is playing third base? Uh, Uribe. Uribe. Yes, sir. No, no, I am not doing this again. I know how this works. I'll assume that we've got Juan Uribe starting, and then it turns out that you've just sold our corner infielder on eBay, or his glove is in East Bay, or you just got a rebate on Lyle Overbay. I just want to know the guy playing third base in the baseball game that we are in
1: charge of. Right. And and I want you to tell me. But you is pitching. I is pitching? No, you is pitching. For the first game, at least. I is not pitching. No, you is. Do it? Catching, sir. Forget about the battery. Let me get the infield before I kill myself.
0: I just need to know third base. Right. And I want you, the one that is called Roos, to volunteer that information. Right. Fine. How about I just go play third base? Does that work for you? Uh, but you're not right, I sir. know, but I'm sort of at a loss here, ain't I? Some dude's on first, second is weak, shortstop is bla, blah, 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 and I've lost control of the team I got traded three hours ago. So either I get out there and start taking shags, or you tell me who is on third. Choosing the outfield. I can't do this. I need you to give me a name. An honest-to-God man's name. Xander Bogarts.
1: <laughs> it's actually Josh Donaldson. I don't know why I said that.
0: Doesn't matter. Come help me get off these hunter-pents.
1: Go ahead and put that straight into our modern classics bank, don't you? I'm good with it. Thanks to Jen Adams for that fantastic back and forth. And mercifully, we are once again pretty much out of time for this week's show. Although, Sam, I have a little story here. I was watching TV last night, catching up on my last week tonight with John Oliver, and suddenly all the lights went out in my place. The screen turned to static, and a deep terrible voice began to chant in a language that I didn't understand but knew deep in my soul was horrible. As a reasonable person would I hid under my couch for a while and when I peered back out a few minutes later there was a small box shaped like a skull. Now every time I opened the box this strange voice continues to repeat the same message again and again which I I think means it's time for another episode of Where in the World is Intern Scott Diego? That's right. It's another message from our intern Scotty, who is off on his post-high school travels
0: around the world. And in this case, Scott somehow managed to get us the voice of Birdseye View's own Scott Magnus in this strange little box on Alan's desk. Let's listen for a moment. Alan, you want to open the box? Sam, Alan, this is Scott from Birdseye View. I gotta say, I'm a little concerned about the uh recent episode with the uh archival footage of uh what has happened in the future um you know I've got two children and a loving wife. I'd really like to know when and if I will be destroyed in the future by um i guess an air bomb attempt um from someone having grievances against Estonia um if you can give me a call back and let me know um when I am passing away so that I can uh put my affairs in order that would be greatly appreciated. Also, Alan, my wife is very interested in this day, too, so that um, arrangements can start being made for her second marriage. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Bye.
1: I think we do actually have some good news in this particular regard, though. Scott is referencing last week's seventh inning sketch and the horrifying Billy Bean press conference that ended in Jeff Lunau orchestrated violence. But the research that we've been able to do about the dystopian future of sabermetrics suggests, Scott, that you actually weren't at that press conference and that your knowledge of advanced metrics was actually a key part of the rise of the Estonian World Police. So, when it comes to plans for our next of kin, it should
0: maybe be us making them. And this program was written and produced by Sam Dingman and Alan Smith, and featured original theme music by Marshall York, Woody Guthrie's Wreck of the Old 97, Town Hall, Weather Report, Fish, and the Black Crows. You can find all the episodes of our show at our website, bemorons.com, or in iTunes, and we are also on
1: Twitter At The Morons. So, Sam. Yes, sir. What do you call Henry Arudia when he's taken some time off from baseball to head to China and bond with his spirit animal, the giant panda, in its natural environment? Would that be Henry Bamboo Shudia? That it would. Good. That's
0: comforting. (laughs) I'm glad he's trying to better himself. (laughs) Because the Orioles minor league system certainly isn't helping. All right. Goodbye, folks. (laughs) DOWN!